Good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you. Man, Thanksgiving's here. I spent about, and uh, Deanna helped me, and we were putting out Christmas lights all day yesterday. I mean, grandkids are coming in in about six to eight hours, so we're ready to go, we're ready to party. I hope you guys are, are uh, designing some sort of celebration of Thanksgiving. And sometimes you have to do it by yourself. Sometimes you have to, you know, take the lead on it and create that Thanksgiving moment. One of the things that I do with, I did by myself growing up was I would just take the kayak and I would slap it on top of whatever car I had and tie it, you know, duct tape it, whatever it took. Didn't have the, the highest, the latest, greatest racks or anything like that. And I would just put it in a creek and uh, every, every Thanksgiving morning, just paddle just for a little bit. And I would uh, talk to God, and I would talk to, and this may sound a little, a little uh, New Age-ish, but I'd talk to the, the amazing Native Americans that were here before us and thank them for, you know, you know uh, being hospitable and um, maybe apologizing for a few atrocities. But other than that, um, it's just a time to say, listen, God, You've given us so much, and I just thank you. And so you can create that moment. Uh, don't wait for that moment just to happen to you, but you can create that moment just going down to a river, going down to a Folly Beach or any other location throughout the Low Country, and just have a moment with God, thanking Him for what He's given into your life. So um, one of the other things that we got coming up is hanging with the Greens. Now that you've got Thanksgiving, then you've got Black Friday. Um, you got all that amazing chaos, and we're going to be right in the middle of it, so do not get in our ways. I mean, it's, it's going to be crazy. But then next Sunday at 5 o'clock, we do Hanging of the Greens. And what we do is we decorate the church. We decorate the outside. We're going to do some lighting on the outside of the building. Uh, but we invite you to come bring uh, maybe a leftover snack or your favorite dessert, and, and we'll have the, the game on so if there's a favorite football game that you're missing, we will have that game for you. But it's just a great time to just extend the celebration of Thanksgiving and be a part of preparing for the holidays. And another thing that we're doing this year is I'll be doing a series on Advent. And we wanted to create an opportunity for you as a single person or as a family to just create a moment for the next month of an understanding about what Jesus did for us through his birth, his death, and his resurrection. So we're on our app. We're going to have daily readings that are being put together all the way through Advent so that you get up in the morning, you just push the app, and you'll be able to sit and have breakfast with your kids, or maybe you do it at dinner, and talk about the days leading up to Advent or the birth of Christ. We're also providing 30 Advent wreaths. If you don't have them, We've got them in the back, and we've got some demonstrations about what they can look like, how you can create them, and uh, we've got a parts list if you want to go shop and make your own. But we want you to just decide that we're going to take a hold of this season, and we're going to make it meaningful. We're not going to let Targets and Amazon determine what the quality of the next couple months that we have together is. But rather, we're going to look for the, the meaning that is in the season so we invite you to be a part of that, and we're trying to facilitate that as much as possible. So if you don't have your app over the next couple minutes that we're together, just download it from any of the app stores and just put it on your phone, and you'll see that the sermon notes are there and all our events, and that way you can stay current with everything that's taken place. 
So we've been taking a look at joy, and we've looked at it a lot of different ways. And you know, the reason why we look at it a lot of different ways is because I'm not trying to, like, write a book or anything. Like, wow, wasn't he clever coming up with these new ways? It's because my little ADDP mind has to look at truths a lot of different ways. I'm not just a guy that you can say, you know, you just need to uh, believe and then shut up. You just, that's what it says. You just need to grab a hold of it. My brain doesn't work that way. I have to, I have to see things visually and in, in these concepts a little bit different than maybe the, a traditional person. My wife, if, you know, you just tell her that God loves her, she's just like, you know, she just, she just buys into that. You know, she's just like, oh, yeah, the Heavenly Father loves you. And so she's like, okay, I love my Heavenly Father. And every time she prays, she cries. And I'm over here, I'm like, I'd like a little proof here. I'd like to see some empirical evidence that this thing is really up there and all. So it's an interesting blend that we have. But as I've been taking a look at this, we've looked at words like robust, resiliency. We looked at the Renaissance and, and some artistic elements that speak into creating depth in your life beyond the facial circumstances of life, that as you begin to look at your vanishing point, who is Christ, it begins to add depth to your perspective of events that you normally would think were just bad events. And then I think last week we talked about recycling and that how nobody here has a throwaway experience. There's no experience that you have that God just says, yeah, I'm just gonna throw that away. That's, that's just a bad experience and we're just gonna get rid of it but rather that God has the ability to take any experience, when we give it to him, begin to recycle it and to turn it into something more meaningful. Doesn't mean that it was a good experience, doesn't mean God wanted you to have the experience, but we, we were able to turn our lives over to him and he's able to do something incredible out of it. And you know, to be honest with you, until this sermon series, I couldn't really see how, um, this, I really didn't understand joy. And God leads me into series because he's teaching me and he, sometimes he's teaching you through it as well. I just thought that there was something about the chemicals in my body and, you know, that sometimes uh, God would make me feel happy and sometimes I wouldn't feel happy and I've got these chemicals. And, and so a lot of the times in my life I just wake up with the glass half empty. You know, it just kind of like trying to find some reason to get excited about life. And so I always had this perspective that there were some people who had joy, and then there was always us curmudgeons that kind of, you know, born and raised in the Northeast where it's always gray, dark, and cold. Sure, there's a few traditional World Series titles and Super Bowl rings, but they just still don't seem to have the ability to affect the human heart in a profound way. And so as I was going into this series and looking at it, uh, it was like, it, you know, God, what is this thing jo about joy? But over the last couple of weeks, he's really stirred a real expectation about him. I was encouraged this week when I read that um, a psychological study had just been released by the University of North Carolina. And I was excited because it spoke to the subject of joy and because it offered some scientific verification to this biblical idea that we're talking about. 
mean, because let's be honest, a lot of this stuff we take on faith, it's like, well, yeah, happiness is, is okay, but this thing called joy is better, and it's this bigger perspective of life, and you've got happiness, yeah, the car's nice, the house's nice, and, and maybe losing 10 pounds made you feel better about life, but joy is more significant. And, but a study came out, and I was just ecstatic reading, reading it this week, that verified some of these ideas. Let me, let me read to you some of the technical aspects, because I hope you find it fascinating, because it, it just, whenever the Bible and science collaborate together, um, it's, just, it's just incredible. The study was done by a team led by Barbara uh, Fredrickson. She's a professor of psychology and the principal investigator of the positive emotions in, in psychophysiology lab at UNC, okay? So in short, the study implied this. The kind of happiness you feel matters and can have different effects on your physical well-being. So it's not just a matter of whether or not you're happy or sad or happy or depressed, but the kinds of happiness actually has a physiological effect on your body. Now, I had never heard that before. I always knew that stress was kind of wearing me out and depression could kind of wear you out, but I, I didn't know that there was an effect of, of these kinds of happiness. I think we've always known that depression and stress can have an effect on your body, and there's, um, but now they have found out that happiness, that kind of happiness that gives you instant gratification, like eating a cupcake or um, buying a new pair of shoes or whatever it may be, that it can have the same physical impact on your genes on a cellular level as depression and stress can have on your body. Uh, Dr. Fredrickson said this, I've known anecdotally that positive emotions impact us on a cellular level, but seeing these results have given us proof that there is a real difference in the kinds of happiness that we feel in its potential long-term consequences. Now, as I was reading that, is, that, is it possible that there's a kind of happiness that is, that is really not as good for us as we thought it was, or at least the way that we pursue it. The experts have divided happiness into two different types, hedonic and eudaimonic. Now, if you're looking at that second work and you're saying, you know, you didn't pronounce that right, let me say, there are other churches in Charleston, okay? <laughs> so don't come up to me. You know, you probably didn't even see that word before today. So, I, and I know that anytime I can say Yoda and work it into a sermon, I like to do it. So, but there's these two different types of happiness that you and I experience. Now, the hedonic one, and you can kind of see the word hedon in, built into it, but hedonic happiness comes from when a person has an experience that gives them pleasure. I think we know about this kind of happiness, and we talked about it. It is that sense of well, um, that feeling that you get when you do something that provides instant happiness, like watching a really cool movie, um, making out with your girlfriend, uh, maybe sitting around having a glass of wine, whatever it may be, driving really fast in your car, that's a really cool one. Uh, I mean, there are all kinds of different things that we do that we get, you know, your football team wins the game, you get this surge of happiness, and it's called hedonic happiness. But this yodamonic one is really interesting. This kind of well-being is a kind of happiness that comes from not from consuming something, but from a sustained effort at working towards something bigger than yourself. 
Now, let me be very clear. This is not a biblical team. I didn't get this report from Liberty University. This is a secular university that is now seeing that there's a difference between this, this pleasure-seeking happiness that we have and then this kind of long-term, big-picture kind of happiness and the effects that that seems to have on our bodies. In other words, this other kind of happiness is working towards a sense of meaning in your life and contributing to something like a cause. And the study says that we know that misery, what misery looks like on a genetic level. And I'm just going to kind of skip over some of it, but when you experience misery or when you experience stress, your genes react to it. Essentially, there's an increase of uh, inflammation in the body and a decreased antiviral response. So it affects the white blood cells, that when you're experiencing stress or depression in your life, it kind of unprepares you for hard events in life. It wears you out, it tires you out and puts your body in a state of, um, uh, it's, it's kind of like if we're looking at terrorism, normally you'd be in a green state where you're not really worried that it's going to take place, but when you get under stress or depression, your body goes into a yellow or maybe a red alert stress uh, type of environment where you're, you're really susceptible for illnesses you're not really ready for maybe somebody telling you you're going to lose your job or you have an argument with your spouse or difficulty with your children and you just are physically wore out and not able to face it. Well, they're finding out now that that actually happens on the physiological level. But here's where it gets really fascinating and important on our study about joy versus happiness. The study found that people who experience the happiness that comes from self-gratification experience the same level of high inflammation and low antiviral and antibody gene expression as somebody who is going through depression. I was just like, oh, you're kidding me. It's like, like we were wired that self-gratification will wear you out. It will have the same effect on you as depression on a cellular level. It's like, wow, it's, it's almost like it's a mirror image of what Scripture talks about, about this difference between happiness, this momentary delight that we have in life, and then this long-term seeing the big picture and living for something bigger than yourself. That it actually plays out in the physiological world, actually in the realm of our, of our genes. People who found happiness by, by pursuing something greater than themselves actually in this study had a lower level of inflammation and a stronger antiviral antibody expression about their genetic makeup. Bottom line is that happiness that comes from working for the greater good has a more positive impact on your body. A happiness where you are just trying to make yourself happy or try to buy your way out of a depressed moment by doing something that self-gratifies actually contributes to the demise of the body. It's like, wow. See, God wired the whole human system that it's trying to point, you gotta, get, you gotta be part of something bigger than yourself. You gotta connect with something bigger than yourself. It's not about if you feel good today. 
I mean, if that's going to be the equation of whether or not we think God's good or I'm good is based upon whether or not I have a self-gratified moment, the, the Bible and physiology tells us that's not how it works out. That's not how the human experience was designed to be. The work in theory is that hedonic happiness is, is dependent on your, your taking self-involved action to constantly feed the emotion system. The problem is, is when you have a life experience where you can't feed the system anymore, then your body begins to experience a breakdown. When you can't just go out and buy something because your credit cards are all run up. Or you can't just fix it because you're living with him and you argue with him and, and he's just not going away. He's just there and you don't have the ability to fix the situation. But people who experience this other kind of happiness, or what I'm going to call biblical joy, are those who are able to, when they experience negative events in their lives, they have a twofold impact. One is their bodies are better prepared for the stress, because everybody experiences stress and depression at some time in their life. But also, they have contributed to some greater good than themselves, and now they have a community that they can, they can go to. So they not only have the physiological strength that comes on the cellular level, but they have the community level that the, the hedonic type of happiness actually produces just the opposite. It excludes you, it puts you off by yourself, and it's not sustainable and has a negative effect on the body. So I, I, you know, this is the kind of thing that, that my, my faith, I look at and I'm like, you know what? This Paul was really into something. And that's why Paul was echoing this, that the answer to adversity is more than just getting a better muffin. Um, it's better than a new car. It's better than a new, a new pleasure. It's living beyond yourself, living, being connected to a bigger picture and living beyond your own personal interest. So listen to how he lays it out in, in Philippians 2. And this is what he's talking about. He says, is there any... Encouragement from belonging to Christ? He's asking us that question. Is there, and rhetorically, he's, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? And is there any fellowship together with the Spirit? Um, are your hearts tender and compassionate? And, and I think what he's, he's saying here is that, you know, does belonging to Christ do anything for you? Because it should. Because you're belonging to something bigger than yourself. So he says, that should have an effect. Does his life, his love for you, bring you some sort of comfort? Because it really should. But I love it. He, he, it kind of reflects what the study said. And it's not only being connected to something bigger to yourself, like being connected to the love of Christ, but also being a part of living towards a cause in the events and the lives of other people. He says, is there any comfort in the Spirit, this fellowship of the Spirit together? Because there should be. There is a comfort that comes as a result of being tender and compassionate to other people. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or from con uh, conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He's identifying the two kinds of happiness that we pursue in life. And he says, listen, I want you this hedonic thing. I want you to be very careful about that. Don't, don't make life all about pursuing your own personal happiness or about your own personal desires. Be very careful about it. But he says, begin to think about others. See yourself a part of this grand picture, something greater than yourself, part of a larger community of people. He says, let each of you look not on his own interests, but on 
also on the interest of others. There is this terrible, crushing thing that happens to us in adversity. It's called self-focusedness. And I made the word up, but it's self-focusedness. Is that, yeah, I guess I gotta be real careful about saying that one. So self-focusedness is that when you get focused on yourself and only yourself, it not only has a biological effect, not only has a community effect, but it has a spiritual effect on your joy. You know, it's hard, you think you're protecting yourself, you, you think you're rescuing yourself, you think you're actually self-gratifying yourself and it's gonna be better for you, and the Apostle Paul said like, no, this is not the remedy for your situation. He says in Philippians 2.5, it says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus was entitled. He's one of the only, well, he's probably the only human being on the planet that had a right to be entitled for something. He was entitled to be honored by God. I think we get that. I mean, he is God, and we don't understand how the whole Trinity works, but he has a right to be honored as God and to be treated with the respect that God gets uh, treated with. He was entitled not to suffer. I mean, he didn't do anything wrong. And he's coming from heaven to earth, so his entitlement is that he he doesn't doesn't have to suffer. He was entitled to complain about anything that went wrong to him, don't you think? I mean, son of... If, if God's being done wrong by somebody and he, all he wants to do is come to planet Earth and help and he's done wrong, he technically is entitled to complain about it. He was entitled to expect a better life than a manger, than, um, than being born in the you know, first century Palestine. I mean, I, if I was Jesus, I might have held out to the, the 20th century, 21st century to maybe do the whole thing. So he was entitled to pick a better time in history to arrive on the planet, but he, he chose that. He, he was entitled to be angry at the events of his life. When he was standing in front of Pilate, Pilate was trying to demand answers from him, and he said, don't you know I have the power of life and death over you? And, and Jesus says, you know, at any time I could call 12 legions of angels, 144,000 flaming spirits with, with really big swords. At any time I could call upon them, I am entitled to do that. I am entitled to wipe you out. I am entitled to be angry. I'm entitled to be upset. I am entitled to be worshipped. He had all this entitlement. But here's the thing. He decides to push it aside. And why did he do it? Because he knew the expectation of joy that comes with caring for the needs of others. He said, you know, you're right. I'm, I'm entitled to make myself happy. I'm entitled to be angry about what my husband did to me. Or I'm entitled to be angry about cancer or an automobile accident or somebody's life being taken. I am entitled to be upset. Some of us experience things that we are entitled to be upset about. But does that mean that it's good for us to hold on to them, whether on a cellular level or on a joy level? And so Jesus, even with the things that went wrong with his life, he begins to push these things aside. Philippians 2, 7 through 8 says this, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death 
on the cross. I know this is total counterintuitive for us as an American culture because pain makes us focus on us. Injustice makes us focus on us. What about me? And it's, that's an intuitive response. I think it's built into us. You know, We pull our hands away from a hot surface. I think it's intuitive for us that when we experience pain, injustice, or our lives not going the way that we want, that we kind of have a right to be upset about it. And I'm not going to take that right from you. Because you may have, you may have a right to be upset about the events of your life and the, and the way that it's transpired. But joy is discovered when we live outside of our self-focus and begin to focus on the needs of others. And that's what Jesus does. It's like, I know I've got a really, I got this thing that I could focus down on and I could define myself based upon um, the injustice that's been done to me, the wrong, the pain I've experienced, the cancer, whatever it is, that's been, I know I can focus on this, and I know I have a right to focus on it, but I'm willing to lay that aside, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose to focus on somebody else. Because otherwise, our unfulfilled self-entitlement brews what? What do you do when you focus on yourself in an, in an injustice? You become angry? You become jealous about the other people who haven't had the experience. I mean, what other good things? I mean, and these are the components that affect that, that antiviral system on the molecular level that begin to affect the white blood cells. They're not just things that go in, in our mind. This poison begins to work itself into our physiological system, our sociological system. It begins to work its way out. We begin to have dread, and we begin to live with anxiety. So Jesus pushes this thing aside. And this is a journey that no one else is going to be able to take for you, from you. I, I can't shout it out of you. I can't, I can't tell you, you don't have a right to be angry. You know, or your pain wasn't as bad as my pain. Or what happened in your family wasn't as bad as what happened to me. I don't know what you're complaining about. Have you ever had a, like, usually a parent, at least when I was growing up, unless you fought in World War II and went through the Great Depression, you didn't have a chance about complaining about anything. I mean, don't even talk to me about your McDonald's. Well, when we were kids, the Great Depression, you know, I mean, it was always this. You just, you know, but nobody can take that away from you. It is something that you're going to have to decide that you're going to push aside. And that's what the scripture tells us, that Jesus emptied himself. And that's, it's, it's, it's a yourself thing that you have to decide. That I am not going to let the, the bad events of life to determine who I am and fill me up. I am going to empty myself of my entitlement, whether good or bad, my entitlement to make myself happy or to allow myself to be angry. I am going to empty myself of this. You know, during the first flood here at Crosstown, the, the anger really swelled up in me. And I know you're, you, you, you probably wonder, why would you be angry? I could see you being confounded, but why angry? And it's because, you know, I like that little Christian myth that if you're a Christian and if you're a good one, and I'm, I'm not a bad one, I, I do pretty good, um, 
And I'm a faithful pastor. I'm, I, I stand my watch and try to do the best job I can. You kind of think maybe, just maybe, there is a little magic in the world where these things don't happen to Christian people, you know? And then when all of a sudden that mythology got busted up for me, I was really angry. It's like, how dare you, sir? How dare you allow my life to be inconvenienced by my building? And everybody else just looking in at like, oh, I wonder what he did wrong, you know. <laughs> uh, or, you know, all the faith people are like, well, you know, there's got to be sin in that camp somewhere. Somebody's sinning and doing something wrong. And then there's the other people. You know what? Well, I know Paul. He's real cocky and he's prideful. And, and, and this is going to be good for him. You know what? If I didn't flip you off, then I just didn't get an opportunity to see you, okay? It wasn't because I was nice. But I, I heard all that stuff. And I, I developed a real, I mean, there was only a handful of pastors that actually got involved in helping us as a church. And the resentment towards the other pastors that just kind of text me a message, hey, Paul, praying for you. God's going to do something awesome. Okay, I gotta be honest with you. I don't know if this is a good word. It ticked me off. Okay, I'll, I'll pull it back. Thank you. Yeah, it really ticked me off that I got these cliche joy texts. Oh man, remember the harder it is, the better the rise. You know, all these little things. When God shuts one door, he opens another. You know, like keep your, keep your architecture to yourself. I'm not interested in your cliche response. And I got really, really angry. Um, but then something happened in the middle of it. An opportunity presented itself. A foster care moment. It's like, what? It's like, so I'm upset. We don't have, we're, we're doing church in a cinema again. And this building's trying to be rebuilt. We're starting to figure out insurance. And it's like, God, where are you? Why aren't you helping me? Why aren't all the other churches over here building this thing up? Again, we had some great churches respond. Uh, Northwood Seacoast and some of the other churches. Uh, the church, Grace on the Ashley, was great. I mean, we really had some churches do some wonderful things for us in that period of time. But in the middle of like, okay, what am I going to do? How am I going to fix this? I really hate this job. Contemplated on my head that all of a sudden this young girl um, I discovered was in an orphanage. Well, and she's connected to my family by marriage. And it's like, well, okay, she's 15 years old and she's in an orphanage because her parents don't want her. Um, because she's too difficult. Um, it's like, well, that doesn't really seem like a good reason for a 15-year-old girl to be in an orphanage. And so there she was in this orphanage. So I just kind of felt like, and I taught the student, I'm like, hey, I think we're supposed to foster care. You know, let's, let's bring her home. Let's, let's kind of make her ours. And so within two weeks, two months of the church being flooded and us not being in the building, the one thing God told me was, you need to get out of you because you're poison to you right now. And not only that, your problem's not going to be fixed right now. Can I tell you? And they didn't tell me it was going to happen two more times. That would have that really <laughs> talked about flipping off. I mean, that really would have taken me to a new level. Um, but in the middle of that, Kat comes into our family and has been a part of our family for these last three years. And it was like, God was like, see, this is what I want you to pour yourself into. 
Uh, this is, don't miss life because of the adversities. I want you to think bigger than yourself, and I want you to think out your side. And here's the thing about foster care, is it doesn't pay back in the sense of it doesn't make the church bigger, it didn't raise my salary, didn't make me famous. I mean, it didn't promote me in any new circle where now I'm being asked to speak to millions. It's a really, it was a private little thing that happened and only one needy human being was going to experience a benefit from it. So I thought. Because I wasn't expecting joy. I wasn't expecting all the way down to the cellular white blood cells in my body, all the way into the depths of my heart as a human being, that God would, when I chose to empty myself and look on the interests of others, not only the interests of myself, that God was actually going to heal my problem. It's counterintuitive. I was ready as a Bostonian to fight the fight and to kill who needed to be killed and to blame and sue who needed to be blamed and sued. And God's like, yeah, you're maybe entitled to that, but that's not the way I want you to go. I want you to throw yourself into something bigger. I want you to throw yourself into someone else's life other than your own. For Jesus, the exaltation of joy was expressed in his life uniquely by God the Father. Listen to what happened after he, he empties himself of his entitlement. We're told this in Philippians 2.9. It says, therefore, as a result of Jesus' emptying himself, looking for joy in the pleasure of seeing something bigger happen than just self-gratification, you know, moving to this eudonic type of happiness as opposed to the hedonic type of uh, happiness. It says this, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth on under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's like, I, I, and you may be saying, well, that's what happened to Jesus. There is a lifting up to every human being that begins to connect with the plan of God for other people. We, we call it in here exaltation, and we see a throne, and we see Jesus being lifted up onto the throne and all that. But I believe joy is the exaltation of the human spirit. It's when you allow God to lift you up because you lifted someone else up in their need. Instead of sitting there just tapping your foot and angry and folding your arms and saying, well, what about me? Looks like I'm going to have to take care of myself because nobody else is going to do it. You know, God's like, no, if you will empty yourself and focus on the needs of others, I will lift you up from the physiological realm all the way to the spiritual realm. I will bring health and wholeness into your life. It's like, wow. So, I, I, guys, America doesn't need a new well, it may need a new president, uh, but I, I just, I'm just saying, it doesn't, it doesn't, that's not the solution. You know, there's a book that's recently out, How Did, How Did We End Up With Trump? And it's not a for or against Trump book, but the whole idea of the book is, is why would America end up at this particular place? And the number one reason this author, um, again, doesn't cite a political bias, says is that because we couldn't meet in the middle anymore. So extremism had to happen. See, we couldn't listen to the dialogue of what the guy on the other side of the aisle was going through. 
We couldn't listen to their need. So we had to come up with an extreme solution. And guess what? when, When election time comes again, we're not going to get a better solution. We're going to get another extreme solution. As long as we can't look beyond our own interests and look at the interests of others, people who think differently than us and begin to partner for success in their lives. But when we do, there is an exaltation of God in our lives where he begins to lift us up when we start looking on the interest of others. I know that some of you know the sickness that comes that's brought on by depression. I know some of you are plagued and you've tried to medicate and all that stuff. And, and, and in no ways would I tell you to come off medication because there are some divine expressions to the, the works of medicine that, that God has given us. But 70% of America is being medicated for depression. Are we that? Is, that, can't be, that can't be genetic, can it? Is it possible that even maybe... 70% of if you do have a physiological thing, and I do too. I mean, I'm ADD. I, I'm supposed to be on ADD medicine and all this other stuff. But is it possible that some of that solution we need to look at is not to be medicated, but rather it is to experience look, looking at life beyond ourselves, connecting to something bigger, and then beginning to push aside our entitlement and live for the success and the happiness of other people? And stop falling for the, the pill or the, the car or the girlfriend or the looking for a new drug that will just kind of make your life happy. Because in the end, if it's a momentary happiness, it has actually weakened you as an individual, physiologically and spiritually and emotionally. So God invites us to joy, to choose joy, to experience what it's like to be connected to something bigger than ourselves and then to give and be a part of a cause that is outside of ourselves. And we begin to live inside out. Again, I don't want you to say in, in any ways that you're weak because you, you have to medicate or you don't have a right to be angry about what society or someone has done to you. I, I get it. I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you. But I'm going to say, is there another solution other than an election or a pill or a new spouse, or a new house, or revenge, or anger, or dread, or anxiety. I think there is another solution. It's this long-term fulfillment that's experienced by being connected to Christ and beginning to look into the lives of other people. As we move into this moment of expressions, um, I know it's counterintuitive, and I, I can see it in some of your faces that you have just determined I'm wrong. And I, and I get that. I've looked at a lot of preachers that way. But can, the, can, can science and religion be wrong to, in agreement? When do they usually come to a, agreement? What kind of evidence were you looking for? Is, is the depression working? Is the self-gratification working? Is the bitterness working? Is the dread working? And here today, I'm telling you that it's not working. It's not working for America, and it's not working for us individually. And today, God invites us to choose joy. But it's the only thing that you can only do it. I cannot 
I cannot wave my hands and just pray some prayer. God, I just pray that you'll just do this. I wish I could. Jesus emptied himself. You are going to have to be engaged in this process of taking whatever it is and giving it to God, whatever entitlement that you have, good or evil, and begin to connect yourself to something bigger. Father, we enter into this moment with you. And Lord God, I love, I love the good news that you have given us. And it's not a good news that just gratifies us like a muffin. It's not like a cup of coffee in the morning. It's not like a new car or a new house. But your good news connects us to something bigger, something meaningful. It invites us outside of the intuition of humanity and into the divine perspective of God. That we empty ourselves, take upon ourselves the form of a servant in the lives of other people. And then we experience the exaltation of God in our lives as you fill us with joy by being connected to something bigger, connected to the lives of others. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for talking to us today, speaking into our heart, to presenting us truly a new drug, which is not one that dissolves, but rather one that's eternal, that is Christ our Lord the name above all names, the hope of our lives, the cure for our souls. And today we take you in, Lord Jesus.